I'm just gonna pretend I can't see either of you. Yeah, that's good. It's actually better for you that way. That's what most people do anyway. Yeah. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I, it's in the little corner of my screen. I got a big screen, so. Uh, <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's get started, then, Brett. You're uh, you're good to go. We're recording. All right, we're live, baby. Okay. So, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Hot Isle. We're on episode 16 today. Uh, my name is Brent Piatti, and with me I've got my my illustrious co-host. Brian Carpenter, thank you. Hey, good morning, Brian. So um, today what we want to do, the goal of the show is, is to discuss the, the critical relationship between, between open source software and then the developer community. So in particular, you know, we'd like to talk about uh, a Docker, MongoDB, and then also like the rise of the, uh, of the developer as king of the, you know, call it the technology castle. So today's guest is someone I think that is um, someone probably that we've all heard of, or at least the companies that, that he has helped uh, bring up and, and brought that whole developer community together. So with us this morning, we've got Steve uh, Francia. Good morning, Steve. How are you doing today? I'm doing excellent. Awesome. So, Steve, for those that uh, that don't know you, or we can reintroduce you, uh, Steve, you you spent uh, some time at MongoDB and uh, as the chief operating officer uh, at Docker. So, give us a little backdrop on on who you are, what you do, and um, let people know who you are. Sure. Uh, just quick, um, I've been doing open source uh, for. Oh, over 15 years before before we even called it open source, um, and about six years ago, I I've, I was always doing that on the side and and professionally working uh, largely um, with e-commerce um, and uh, data centers, um, and about seven years ago, I got a chance to kind of merge open source together with uh, with paid jobs, which was fantastic and have been able to do that since. Um, so the last two, which are the two you've, you've highlighted here, uh, MongoDB, I, before I was at MongoDB, I built the first e-commerce platform that used MongoDB, loved it, thought it was going to change the way developers wrote applications. Um, I, think, uh, I think it's accomplished that mission, um, as well as helped usher in other databases, alternatives. Uh, it was really the first database that anyone thought um, of using outside of relational database, so it 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 really opened the doors for all these alternative databases that are emerging now. Um, and there, I, so I was able to join MongoDB very early um, and led the uh, drivers team, the integrations team, the evangelism team, the docs team, and the web team um, over three years, and uh, was held responsible for defining the interface and how people used MongoDB. Um, after my time there was over, I, I had an opportunity to join Docker and help lead them uh, specifically responsible for their open source operations and strategy and helping uh, both companies really figuring out how to grow an open source community, how to nurture it, and how to build a business around it. And so is there, what, was the, what was the transition like between um, working at a place that used MongoDB to going to work for MongoDB? Was it something where you were engaged as a developer, maybe even um, giving back code or, you know, at, you know, obviously doing things like pull and, you know, push requests or whatever's going on. Um, is that how you got engaged with them? Or did you just call them up and be like, hey, I love your stuff. I want to come work here. 
Yeah, so it's a f- funny story. Mongo, um, so MongoDB and the company I was at before, OpenSky, are both based in New York City, and they both happen to be based on 18th Street, um, across the street from each other. So uh, when we started using MongoDB, as I said, very early on, um, like very early on, it was just uh, MongoDB was just four people at a desk, um, and that that was the entire company slash project. And um, so we, as we were using it early on, there was we we established a relationship with them quickly because we were finding issues and bugs that nobody else had yet. Um, and you know it was easy to walk across the street. Um, so I, I got to know them early on. Um, was able to speak at one of their earliest conferences, and uh, on, on how we were doing e-commerce with MongoDB. And um, yeah, it kind of it kind of grew from there. There was uh, a lot of exposure. I also was able to contribute to MongoDB before I joined. Um, now the transition, which is what you started asking about, um, was was interesting. It's a it's a big difference working for a company whose end users are uh, at OpenSky. We were focused more on uh, consumer shopping, uh, particularly feminine consumer shopping, um, to going to a place where your end users are developers. That itself was probably the biggest transition because we were writing software. Uh, for a completely different audience, um, and you know the demographic and approach you take uh, is just so different between those two. And, and so that's and, and when you say that, I mean the demographic between MongoDB and then moving to something like Docker. Again, yes, they're both at some point open source, and they both are software, but they're not really all that directly related. So, I mean, I, to me, it seems like the word community is involved with probably whatever happened between your transition between Mongo and Docker. And I think it's, it's an interesting story. So what, what, happened, what happened there? Um, so on a background thread, uh, while I was at MongoDB, I, um, I managed the drivers team, which had four, we, we managed 14 different languages. Uh, we wrote software. We wrote drivers in 14 different languages. And I was able to participate in that development of each language, uh, each drivers in each language. Uh, it gave me a really interesting vantage point because I, I don't know anyone else who's managed a project in, in that many different languages. Um, and seeing the same software being written in all these different languages um, is, is really enlightening. Uh, it also exposed me to languages I'd never used before: Haskell, Erlang, um, Scala, and then Go. And uh, once I started using Go, I I decided uh, before that I, I consider myself a polyglot. I I wrote in eight different languages, and then I picked up Go, and I said, you know what? I'm not a polyglot anymore. I am a gopher. And uh, I started working in Go um, just on my free time. And that kind of, as well as at MongoDB, but pretty heavily on my free time, uh, ended up building uh, some some of the most widely used libraries in Go, um, and the single most popular um, non-commercial backed, so the single most popular community-based uh, program, which is called Hugo. It's a static site generator, uh, similar to Jekyll, but about a thousand times faster, um, and and at least a thousand times easier to install. Um, it's really easy to install. Um, so so I knew when I was leaving MongoDB that I wanted to do something involved with Go. 
Um, and you can't find a better project in Go than Docker. Um, like Docker is the single most popular Go project, um, as well as it. You know, I didn't talk about it, but the first half of my career I actually spent running data centers. Um, I was intimately familiar with the problems that Docker was trying to solve. I, I used BSD jails, um, you know, 15 years earlier, 20 years earlier. Um, so, so when when I discovered Docker, I thought, you know, this is another game changer. Just like I thought MongoDB was going to change the way applications were developed, developers wrote things, I, I figured uh, Docker was going to change the way everyone distributed things, how they deployed things, um, and really going to transform the industry. So, so there was a lot of parallels between the two, although you're, you're right, they speak to different audiences. Um, but uh, yeah, for me, it was a no-brainer to join this uh, another open-source company that's going to transform the industry. Sure. So it sounds like you know. Uh, again, you kind of you bring up the word tr transformational, and, and both of these products have either been uh, maybe not first to market, um, but uh, some of them were, and you know, and, and certainly gaining a whole lot of momentum. Um, but it's interesting to see kind of your transition from you know. I mean, you've had various IT positions even prior to moving into that open source community, right? So you've been been a developer, a DBA, a, you know, VP of IT. Um, my my question for you is, you know, in doing research uh, about your background, I uh, came across your education. So you've got a uh, um, a, a bachelor's degree in philosophy from yeah. Brigham Young. So how yeah. does how does one go from a philosophy major to technology, and then ultimately to you know one of the one of the biggest names in the in the industry today? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. Uh, you wouldn't you you wouldn't believe the story unless I just lived it, right? Like, there's no one would write this story because it'd be too hard to believe. Um, the truth is, in my philosophy class, uh, philosophy classes, uh, there was no one else like me. Everyone else was pre med, pre law. Uh, there was one other gentleman who thought he was going to be a philosophy professor um, and ended up running a bookstore instead. Um, but like no one else was remotely close, uh, which I think is somewhat sad um, because I, so I, I kind of was really fortunate that long, four years before I went to college, so when I was really young, um, 15, I, I was uh, really uh, fortunate to get a job at one of the first ISPs um, in the New York City metro area. And there, um, I, I got some great hands-on experience in running Unix. Um, over the course of three and a half, four years, I moved from you know the, the kid answering phones trying to help people install Internet Explorer 4 to um, to running all of our Unix uh, uh, systems across our entire data structure uh, and our, across our entire data center. Um, and you know this was. This was before really open source was a thing. Um, so FreeBSD we used a little bit, but Linux no one would have used yet for production environment. It was still in that like kind of hobby experimental stage. Um, so you know you were using Solaris and Digital UX, and um, it, it was great. Um, so I did that for uh, a number of years, um, and then I went to college, and I went at a normal age. I just started in, the, in my career much earlier than most people um, and I started as a CS major and BYU a lot of people don't think of it as a tech school um, 
And and it's sad that they don't because if you look at historically what came out of BYU, uh, it really has had a number of great successes, but nothing that um, nothing like an Apple or a Microsoft. But um, as in, they're not as relevant today. But Corel, WordPerfect, Novell, Caldera, which is the first Linux distribution, they all came out of BYU. Um, and you know, if you look back in the '90s, Windows NT was a joke. No one would think of doing anything but running Novell if you're running network ser servers. Um, unfortunately, they didn't mac they didn't carry that forward, right? And NT kind of took over, and then Unix. Um, you think same thing. WordPerfect was completely dominant for such a long time. So was Corel, and over time, their dominance kind of got superseded uh, as they didn't survive some of the transitions as well as you know uh, Microsoft did or Adobe did. Um, but yeah, so I, I I went to school there at a perfect time. It was late '90s, um, right in the heat of all of this. There's a lot of tech going on. Um, I had years of tech experience, and and I started my CS major and hated it. <laughs> I mean, just hated it. Um, my first year was okay, um, but I kept feeling like. I'd already written software um, at this first ISP. I wrote w one of the first e-commerce platforms um, or f first e-commerce sites for e-bags. Um, I, I wrote software that you know hundreds of thousands of people were using, and then I go to school, and I'm writing things that would never be used uh, by anyone ever. And I'm you know I felt like academia was not computer science was kind of taking us to an academic route where we were working on things that were you know theoretical but not useful and for me I just I'm a hacker at nature I just want to make stuff uh, that people use so I kind of struggled with it for a while um, but it, it came to the point where like a lot of my friends who were dropping out of school for jobs I, I didn't want to do that I felt education was important but I knew if I stayed in CS I was just gonna drop out because it wasn't engaging to me um, and so I started looking around at what majors would be things that forget employment. I felt like I had a good place for employment already kind of um, there. Like a lot of people go to college so they can get jobs. I already had jobs. Um, I, didn't, I didn't need college for jobs. I wanted college for me. And I thought, what, what, better, what better major can you get to learn than philosophy? Um, and every philosophy class I take, took, I loved because it was teaching me new ways to learn. Um, and that's the skill, you know, you learned computer science and, and, you know, I was taking classes in Pascal. Uh, that is not helpful very much today, <laughs> right? Um, you know, so those skills kind of go out pretty quick, although Go is pretty heavy Pascal, but, you know, that's 20 years later. Um, and nothing since has been anything close to Pascal. Um, and so, you know, like those skills get, you kind of don't use much once you leave. It's more for that piece of paper. Uh, whereas philosophy, I literally use skills that I acquired in that, uh, in that major every single day. Um, and, and you're right, my career looks strange. Um, it's all over the place. I really have broad interests and have been fortunate to find things that uh, I still thought were interesting, but that pursuit of doing something new and learning is kind of what's driven me always. And, um, you know, philosophy was the perfect foundation 
for for that. It, it really was. Well, I think I think you did a good job of explaining, you know, why you did what you did. Um, it's actually an interesting conversation because I was over um, at a university yesterday, and uh, we were having a discussion with the CTO. They they really want to to build an IT program, and one of the things that you said was. You're you're training me in stuff that's antiquated that doesn't reflect what the market is doing, and that's exactly what they're struggling with. Is how do we make sure that what we provide as curriculum is relevant, but also how do we give them credit for things that they may have already done on the outside, right? So if they've got stuff posted on Git, whatever it may be, but uh, it's a really kind of cool, new, refreshing way of thinking about um, educating folks, um, getting them interested, and then. Uh, setting them up for for the outside real world that's actually going on right now. So it's an ever-evolving process. So hard for them to completely wrap their heads around and develop a curriculum, but uh, they're they're headed in the right direction. Yeah, I I, I would just on that point. Um, you know, at, at MongoDB, we um, I had an opportunity to hire uh, a lot of people. Our company exploded while I was there. And we interviewed a lot of uh, people right out of college, and a lot of people doing internships. Um, and I, I don't know how many, but it's I interviewed hundreds of of um, I don't want to call them kids, students, hundreds of students. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you, the people who had um, open source experience, people that had contributed to open source projects, were so much more prepared for the real world than other people. And and I tried, I've tried hard there and since to try and make um, make it so people realize that in school you can get open source experience. In fact, if the college curriculum leveraged open source and contributing to open source projects, um, it, it would be a phenomenal uh, benefit to the students as well as to the teachers. Um, be able to distribute some of that load. Um, but can you imagine if? You're taking a class in Ruby and you've contributed to Ruby on Rails or something like that. How phenomenal that would be, um, rather than writing some generic lab that only gets seen by a TA. Um, I mean, the power to to use open source in the in in education is is huge. Yeah, and, and I was just I was actually just talking to my son this week. He had a career week, and so we were talking about careers and things like that, and. Uh, long story short, he went to a career day as a developer advocate. But um, besides that, he was like, he's like, Dad, I'm gonna I'm gonna go to school at Texas A&M like you did, and I want to do whatever degree you did and all that kind of stuff. And he goes, I'm gonna go to computer science. And I was thinking to myself, it's that's completely useless. I mean, I I get what you're trying to say, but I think it's completely useless. And you know, frankly, he's like, what did you go to school for? And I was like, well, I mean, I barely passed in business, but that's you know, I just did it because it's business and it seemed useful. And it was a lot easier than all the math I had to do in engineering. Um, and so I, I think that, that school is very important, but I also think I agree with you 100%. It's very spot on. And it's exactly what I was trying to convey to him is that you're going to be doing things while you're going to school and even right now that are preparing you for your real job if this is what you want. And school is, is kind of a thing that helps you create a construct around the way you make decisions and not necessarily something that gives you a trade. Uh, and at his age, he thinks college is a is a perfectionist trade school that when you go in and then you come out, you're a developer. And frankly, if you go into college and you come out, 
you're an antiquated developer because they've taught you things that they wrote books on five and ten years ago. Uh, and some schools, obviously, there's specialized programs and there's colleges that have masters in big data and stuff like that. So um, I, I completely agree. It's actually a really relevant topic and really a neat conversation. So thank you. Yeah, I, I do wish more people looked into philosophy too. The the ability to learn how to learn is one that will last a lifetime, and especially if you're in computer science. Uh, remember the the fundamental uh, the the seed of computer science is logic. Uh, that's where that's what all computer science languages stem from, and so you know I I took a lot of logic classes, loved it. Um, it's it's not computer programming, but it it certainly gives you the fundamentals that make programming a lot more uh, approachable. Um, and, and these are skills that work across all languages uh, rather than, you know, you learn a language and a syntax, you're kind of, that's what you've learned. You learn logic, you know how to program in almost anything. I love it. Yeah. So, so Steve, uh, speaking of speaking of open source uh, and contributing back to the community, we do a segment uh, every week called "This Week in Tech History," and uh, this company is you know someone who who has done that. They've contributed to to open source projects. They've developed their own. Um, so, the company is Netflix, and this week in 1999, two years after its founding, Netflix launched its subscription DVD rental service which proved much more popular than renting DVDs individually by mail. So today, this company, right, they 60 million subscribers, 40 million of which are in the U.S., 10 billion hours of viewing time every single month by its users. And we've heard roughly 33% of all Internet traffic uh, is consumed, uh, consumed by Netflix. Um, so you probably know the open source project uh, we've referred to that Netflix uh, you know, came up with, which is the Chaos Monkey. Um, so my question to you, Steve, is are you a Netflix guy? Um, I don't know how to answer that question. Um, <laughs> that's an interesting – I've never described myself as a Netflix guy. Um, but I, I – I've been a faithful customer for I, I don't know a long time. Uh, thanks to Netflix, I haven't paid for cable in maybe ten years. Um, you're a so, Netflix guy. Sorry, yeah, that, it sounds, yeah, sounds like maybe I'm you're Netflix, maybe uh, he's just. Are you a true cord cutter? I mean, or, or is it just just not cable? Like, do you still do over the air? Like, where 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 do you go with your your media? Oh, and, um, we don't watch a lot of sports in the house. Um, which is, I think, the main attraction to live TV today would be sports. Um, for If you're not a sports person, need to see it when it happens. And we watch the occasional game. But um, without that, you, I would just rather watch things when I want to watch them, when I can. Um, so, you know, we watch Hulu, uh, a lot of Netflix. Um, you know, we, we like Amazon Video. Um we yeah we we we're, we definitely watch more movies and TV series than anything else. Um, yeah, my wife loves PBS. Like uh, she loves the BBC shows, and PBS has a great um, presence. So we use Roku and and a yeah. few other things. But uh, yeah, we we haven't we do have an antenna on the roof. I'll, I will say that we do have an antenna on the roof, an HD one, um, and it 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 we we live close enough to New York City. We we get like 
50 channels, 60 channels. It's fantastic. Uh, we almost never use it. Uh, I think we used it for the Super Bowl last year, and that was the last time <laughs> we used it. Um, it's just, yeah, like I said, live live TV is, uh, um, I don't know, it, it's not our thing. Yeah, I, I, can't, well, I, I watch a lot of live TV for sports, and uh, I, I like to watch BYU games, especially when they beat uh, University of Texas. But um, they, uh, you know, I do a lot. I, I actually bought, I kickstarted a company called Simple.TV, for over the air to try to get a bit of a DVR type experience with uh, over the air. And I have like two of the boxes and I have two antennas and all this stuff. And they're just, they're sitting in a box. Um, I tend to, I tend to drag, nav, you know, either get Netflix or I do have to have cable because I watch a lot of sports. So I agree with you. So do, do you, are you familiar with their open source projects though? Obviously they have chaos monkey. Have you, have you seen that? And then also they have Netflix OSS, which, uh, Frankly, other than the name and, and you know understanding it's a bit about open source in their community, uh, I'm not 100% sure what the whole charter is of that. But uh, you know, what do you think of those things as far as what Netflix has done from a software perspective? So I'll, I'll, I'd like to answer a little more generally because I think Netflix is, um, is a great example of a lot of companies that are finding ways to uh, be a part of open source uh, in a material way. Um, and I think you know other companies in this Yahoo, Facebook, Twitter, um, all of which their core business is technology, but it's not based on it's not like a MongoDB Docker where their core business is selling something with their open source project that they created. Um, they're doing they have a business model that you know Netflix doesn't need to distribute open source. Twitter doesn't need to open source anything to be successful. Their business model doesn't depend on it. But yet they do it, and, and they do it well. And all these companies, I think, are, are, are good examples of this because they, they see that the value, there's a lot of value in working together. And you know, I, I, I mentioned those companies uh, specifically together because a lot of them worked with Cassandra and Hadoop. Which you know, Cassandra comes out of Facebook, um, and Hadoop comes out of Yahoo. But the main, you know, all of those companies have contributed to those projects. All of them benefit from it, and and, and it's great. It's great to see how open source is making um, all of these companies succeed better by sharing. It's really, you know, there's there's really I tell people there's nothing like open source in the world, and there's never been anything like open source. Uh, where where companies are working together uh, with mutual goals um, without really competing, even though they're competitors, it's really a, a unique situation, uh, which you know creates unique challenges. And and open source strategy is certainly something the entire industry is trying to figure out. But um, yeah, so I, I think I think Netflix is a great example of a company that gives back to the community and also benefits heavily from doing so, um, and is a good example of. You know, they describe different involvement. Some people call it "throw it over the wall" open source, meaning we're, we'll let you use our stuff and we'll show you the source code, but we don't really care about any contri contributions from anybody else. And and Netflix is is largely not that. Largely, their their projects they found ways to integrate with with other projects and and release some of their own, where it feels more of a community effort. Um, which I think really maximizes the benefit of open source uh, in its purest way. 
So, Steve, speaking of Cassandra and Hadoop, and, and we know that Netflix obviously does does analytics, you know, on on our viewing habits and to to recommend stuff. Um, so, kind of in that big data space, you wrote a book called the Big Data Handbook. Tell us more about what that is, what the premise is, um, you know, how old it is, and if it's still relevant. Uh, sure, sure. So, I I co-wrote a book, um, and it's it's kind of what it is. The uh, the book is interesting because it's it's a collection of chapters written by different industry experts about their own perspective, um, which made it really, uh, it was a project I wanted to get involved in because I thought it was really appealing in that uh, this big data is a really broad term. Uh, it's really more of a marketing term today than anything else. Um, and it's effective in that, right? I mean, big data is used everywhere to describe this abstract thing, which is, I mean, can you think of two less specific words? Big, <laughs> meaning what? Not small? I don't, what is big? And data, right? Like what, data is a little more concrete, but data really means information. Um, and, and so like, what is big data? And, and people go run with it and they do lots of different things. Um, and that's the appealing thing about this book is you get all these different perspectives and you get it from people who are in the industry um, and are really focused on solving certain problems. Um, so it gives a little more definition around this term big data and it's really kind of, um, uh, it's called handbook, it's really kind of like uh, learning from people who are in the, in the weeds doing it. Um, and yeah, I, th I think the book is still relevant today. I think it's uh, it's a it's a unique technical book in that it's not over. It's it's a very technical subject matter, but it's not overly technical in that um, when a new version comes out, we're going to need to update it. It's more um, strategies and um, and different things that we applied in our own experiences. And, and we actually had a note here uh, that the term big data is like a really big and you know almost nebulous term. Uh, and the, the, the direct question to you was, you've described it a bit, um, how would you describe big data to like a seventh grader? You know, somebody who's roughly, what is that, 13 years old, 12 years old, something like that. How would you, how would you give them the picture of, of what it is and what it means? Uh, seven, that's, all right, so my son's a sixth grader, so that shouldn't be too hard. Yeah. Um, so you know how like, everyone's doing stuff all the time um, and like across the internet or in life like our phones we're always doing stuff and back when I was your age uh, we couldn't really capture that information because hard drives were too small and processors couldn't handle it um, so largely what we used to do we used to like delete logs and not keep things around for very long and nowadays we don't need to do that um, because uh, as technology has progressed, we've made it cheaper, um, which has made it interesting because now we have a lot of information based on everything that everyone's doing all the time that we need to figure out how to take some of that information and, and learn something from it. Um, and you can come up with some really interesting, I mean, this, I'm, I'm very much talking to my son right now, a uh, sixth grader, if <laughs> or, it's not obvious. Or me and Brent, which is about yeah. the same intelligence <laughs> level. So just keep going. We're great. We're learning um, a lot. And so the real question is, now that we have all this information, 
uh, that we've captured from everyone doing all these different things, what can we learn from it? And what, what lessons can we learn and how can we apply those to making the world a better place or to making more money or whatever your goal is in life? Um, and I think there's uh, real opportunities to doing that. So, uh, you know, looking across different industries, finance people are looking for correlations between certain spending habits and the market, for example. Um, and they, the, you know, if, if there was really an industry that pioneered big data, it's, it's certainly the finance industry. We don't talk about that a lot. Um, largely because they don't talk about that a lot because that's their secret sauce and, and none of them really want to talk about it. But the, the emergence of these quant uh, funds in the last 10 years um, is really that. It's really, it's really pioneered big data. Uh, but you also look at it from other places. Netflix uh, can learn things uh, based on patterns. So um, if a lot of people... Um, are you know watch one movie and then another they have a correlation and that's a very simple way of doing it um, I, I do think and I, and I gave a presentation on this uh, a couple years ago that we're at the very beginning of true intelligence uh, historically w which comes from big data uh, historically develop software developers from the 70s 60s on have always been presenting data in like prettier formats um, like that's the whole lamp stack uh, was all around like here's some data and we're going to present it simpler like blogs uh, are it's just raw content presented in a prettier way um, and, and that's what we've done right so largely it's software development's been taking things from a database and presenting them um, and that's not intelligent that's really stupid right like there's no intelligence in taking something and prettying it up uh, but we're at the we're at the very beginning of of actual intelligence, where things are pulling from multiple sources and starting to make conclusions based on that. And I think the best example of that today is is Google Now. So Google Now is is looking at your contacts and it's looking at your address book and it's looking at the clock and it's looking at your location and it's going and it's telling you things like um, and it's also taking all this information from other people. It's saying there's traffic that you might not expect today, um, and you should leave now if you want to make your appointment, and you should take these trains. Like, that's starting to be intelligence. That's not just surfacing this flat information, uh, but it's starting to put it together. Now, it'd be better if it said, the Pope's in New York City today with UN and the president. It's a disaster. Don't schedule any appointments in New York City this week because you're not going to get to where you want to go. Um, like that would be real intelligence, right? Um, <laughs> like Jarvis style stuff. Um, but we're, we're at the beginning of that and, and big data, right? The, the secret to that is just enormous amounts of data that we can start uh, getting um, better insights from. And, and if, if it's me calling, that's really what I think big data is, is it's the ability to gain insights from large amounts of information. And, and that's one of the things, it, it leads us to kind of the other part of our conversation uh, back again towards open source. Um, you know, big data is, is somewhat born, like you said, of intelligence and it's the need for something, right? People need something out of something. I personally need ways to get me to my appointments on time uh, and I trust it more than anybody in my world except for like a couple of my mentors. 
Um, it's you never you never argue ways because he's rarely wrong, uh, if ever. Um, but things like ways and all this other software that's being built, I feel like it's kind of born out of something very simple. Again, uh, from my seventh grader world, it's like I need an X, whatever that is. And everyone, I look around and I I, I try to go get somebody else's X that they've already made. Um, maybe, maybe to me it's lacking features. Maybe to me it's just purely lacking, uh, you know, it hasn't been changed in a while. It hasn't, you know, it's not being updated. Maybe it's too expensive or frankly, maybe it's just, I feel like crafting something because I thought I had an original idea. And so after you look around and you say, I, I can't find an X that I like, you go, screw it. I'm making my own X, right? I'm going to go make my own thing. So, I mean, is that, do you, do you agree with that premise? Is there, is there other ways that open source becomes what it is and the software becomes what it is? And, you know, is there, is there software you can think of that was literally born out of that same kind of somebody woke up and said, man, I need this so bad, uh, you know, kind of, kind of scenario. Uh, I mean, you just define the entire human condition, (laughs) right? Like it's (laughs) people wake up say hey there isn't something here and and i want something i mean that's how we got the wheel that's how we got all the way up through flight um and 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 the internet and beyond i mean really that's what it is um the, the neat thing about open source is it it's letting us do that faster than ever before um whereas before um you know it, it's interesting how many times in history inventions have happened simultaneously um right like there's two di- like the radio is a good example of that the radio was created in two different continents around the same time like within a year of each other i might be wrong about that but i'm pretty sure that one's right um but e- even if i'm wrong about the radio it's it's certainly there's lots of examples of that throughout time and and the, why is that it's because they're in continents away from each other they can't talk about it there's no benefit uh there's no like mutual beneficial interaction between them um and so now you know we have oh, maybe it was the tv anyway um now we, we promise not to fact check you and you know frankly let's not let, let the facts get in the way of a good story so be, <laughs> be fine so yeah with the, i'm I, that's always been my motto in life let's not let the facts get in the way of it um so yeah, so with open source, we have this ability to um, to, to work together on things, uh, to benefit from each other, and it's just accelerating this. Um, so, you know, I, I think, I'll, I'll use an example, it's a bit of a selfish one, but uh, I write a blog. I used to write a blog. I still have a blog. I used to write pretty often. I'm writing less, um, and that's largely because I of what I'm about to tell you, but... It, it was a WordPress blog, and um, I got as I r- started writing less and less, I got more and more frustrated with the fact that I was spending more time doing security updates than I was spending time writing blog posts. To me, that felt like it was a defeating uh, situation, um, and so I, I was like, you know, I look around, I think, well, my blog content never changes, so why am I paying all this money for a server? that's dynamically rendering uh, content that never changes. Um, and so I looked into all the static site generators, um, played with a few, um, and I started using Jekyll, which is the de facto one. It, it comes out of one of the GitHub founders and it's used at GitHub. And it, for, for, for me, it was, um, it was too slow. 
I was also at the same time, since I was redoing my blog, I was like, I, I want to learn uh, responsive CSS design and kind of go back to the beginning. So here I'm, I'm changing around templates. I've got all my blog content, 150, 160 posts. And every time I make a template change, Jekyll takes five minutes to render it. And I don't like waiting five minutes to see a change. <laughs> and I really don't like making the changes in a in like the you know, grease monkey or whatever, like little browser editors, because then I got to replicate all that, and that's just a horrible process. So I start thinking, is there a better way of doing this? Um, right? That's the human condition. I, I see something good, and I think, can it be better? Um, and so I started working, uh, started looking into, well, uh, what would this be like in Go? Go. I heard a Go. Go is fast, right? It's faster than Ruby, isn't it? So uh, so I started playing with it, and uh, just in my free time, luckily I found a, a great Markdown editor. Uh, Go provides a really great uh, web server, and within a couple months I had, I had Hugo. And Hugo gave me what I was looking for. I was able to, um, instead of taking five minutes, it rendered my blog in 200 milliseconds. Um, that was fast enough that when I made template changes, I could just look at switch over to my browser and hit refresh and and it was there uh, and my whole site was was completely changed um, and you know a, over time we've added more features so now you don't even have to change to your uh, to your browser it just every time it rebuilds it automatically pushes an update to all browser windows that are open um, so it, it literally is is refreshed before you can tab over to it um, and, and and so the benefit of this is um, I, I started writing Hugo. It now has over 200 contributors, um, and it's being used on thousands of sites. I, I, if you look, I'm embarrassed about this, but my commit history in Hugo is, is lately is not what I wish it was. Um, but, and Hugo's still doing well, and because other people saw this as, th had similar experiences that I had, they wanted something better that was faster, and and you know it's kind of targeted around hackers. Not like my mom would not use Hugo; she'd probably use WordPress, but well, maybe she wouldn't even use that. But um, you know it, it's targeted more around actual people that could contribute. And we've got so many fantastic contributions to it that's really accelerated this and made the project so much more than I ever dreamed it would be. Um, and you see that all over open source. Um, so I like I like this example because it's it's pretty trivial, um, right? Like no one needs to blog. Um, it's not like blogs are saving lives or anything. But at the same time, um, it's something kind of everyone can understand and relate to, and they can see how you know there's hundreds of blog platforms out there. Why do we need another one? But yet, uh, with open source, uh, there's enough people that found need for another one that did something better and and. You know, had an itch they wanted to scratch and, and started working on it, um, and then you you get something that you know uh, hopefully a lot of people benefit from. Um, and you know, I invest a lot of time in it, but now it, Hugo powers my site and has all these features that I didn't write and I wouldn't have ever thought to write, and uh, just fantastic things that happen because of open source. Steve, it sounds like the it sounds like the Hugo project and open sourcing that was was pretty successful. You know, and again, in, in, in researching you. Uh, there was kind of that moniker, right? The most contributed community-backed Go project. Uh, so I, I consider that pretty successful. My question to you about Hugo, when you 
when you came up with the idea and started writing it, was the intent always to go open source, or was it just going to be a hey, this is my this is my closed source project that I want to take advantage of? Open source from from inception. Okay. Um, and, and specifically for that reason, uh, that their Squarespace has built a great business around um, making websites that are really good looking, easy for people. Uh, that is the opposite. Of, uh, like Hugo's was never, that was never the goal. And if you look at any other website system, uh, they're all open source. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I saw no life as a commercial product for this ever. There could be, like WordPress and Drupal and others, a commercial product built around it, right? There, there's certainly an opportunity for that. But um, yeah, it, it was always a side project and something that I thought that the community could benefit from uh, together um, and, and has and, and continues to. Um, I, I think it's still a young project. We're still starting to kind of get into some of those conversations. But, um, you know, for blogs, it's not – well, I'll tell you, we had uh, – this, this was the, the biggest thing that surprised me about it. Uh, it's not really an answer to your question, but it's kind of a neat story. Um, <laughs> so maybe a year ago, someone got on our message board, and they said, um, we, we think we found a race condition. And it's like entirely possible. Hugo does lots of things in parallel, um, and and you know Go makes that pretty easy to do. And um, but we'd never encountered it before. We had thousands of users, and so we looked into it more. Well, he was generating, I think it was twelve thousand posts, uh, twelve thousand pieces of content, and that was a high number. And so we were kind of looking into it. There indeed was a race condition. We we fixed it shortly after. It, the problem was no one had ever run Hugo long enough to have the garbage collector kick in because no one had ever run it on that big of a content set before. Um, and so, you know, he uncovered a bug we hadn't found before. Um, and, and I was pretty pleased. I think it ran these in two seconds. Like it generated all that content in two seconds. Uh, just phenomenal. And, and we fixed it. And I didn't think much of, of it, but I thought, wow, 10,000, that's, you know, 12,000, whatever it was. Like that's a pretty big number. And um, and as part of it, he like he did some experiments where he tried every other, you know, he tried maybe ten other static site generators. Um, only two of them even finished that a uh, content set that big. I don't remember what the other one was, but it took over an hour. So Hugo was two seconds. The next one was over an hour, and everyone else ran out of memory or crashed. No one, no one could do it. And so yeah, I was like, oh wow, this we really have something pretty neat here. A uh, few months go by, and we get another person on the on the message board. He has six hundred thousand posts, oh. um, and it it generates like dozens of gigabytes of data. And he's working, and he's like, "How can we get this faster?" And it was doing it in about twenty minutes. And um, and I was still like, "Wow, we can read that much data and process that in twenty. And it was imp impressive. Um, we ended up getting it down to like ten minutes for him. Uh, I and I and gave him some tips on what we might be able to, but just processing that sheer amount of data on a disk, uh, I think uh, it, it's going to be hard to get it much faster than that. Um, but it, it kind of speaks to like um, those two experiences helped us make Hugo better. Uh, we would have never done that, right? Like uh, we would have never 
ever. None of the developers that I know uh, are trying things of that magnitude with it. Um, but we all benefit, you know, by some of the improvements that were made because of those things. Yeah, you bring up the word community. I mean, I think you've probably said it 10, 15 times in just our discussion since the beginning. Um, and, you know, those are the people that are contributing to Hugo, to open source, uh, and helping make things better, right? So uh, your first blog post at Docker was about the development community. Um, so my question to you is how how does the community evolve around a project? Like you, you kind of laid out three three rules, and I don't remember them all, but one that 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 stuck out to me was you go to you go to where they are, basically. So, um, in addition to going to where to where they are, what what do you do to entice people and to get them to be invigorated with being a part of, of the community around whatever project it is? Uh, yeah, that's a excellent question um and, and i really think that's um uh, i think it's really the crux of open source um is it, not just sharing information but it's working together and so how do you how do you create a culture and environment where people feel like they can work together um and if you look most open source projects have one or two contributors to them like the vast majority the 90 90 of open source projects have have you know Contributors that work together that know each other in person. Um, there are very few go beyond that, um, and you know, part I think a lot of the reason is because they don't know this. They don't know how to entice a community, uh, how to get other people to feel like they're welcome to contribute. Um, and so I would say I don't, I don't remember the three things I wrote in that blog post as three things, but um, I will, I'll tell you the things those off the top of my head. I, I think people need to feel welcome. I think people need to feel like you want their help. If you want someone involved, you, you really have to invite people. Um, this is not Field of Dreams. If you build it, they will not come, like most of the time. Sometimes that does happen, but for the most part, you really need to invite. Um, and you know, I, I look at the most successful project I know of is, is Linux. Um, I, I think any people would have a hard time arguing that wasn't the most successful open source project. Um, and if you look at what Linus did from the beginning, he didn't just build Linux. He built it and he announced it on a message uh, board, right, on, on Usenix. The, what, I don't know what the parallels to that now, but um, and invited people to come check it out. And if you kind of look at Linus over the next two years, there was lots of invitations. Uh, he kept inviting people to help, to participate. And when people found bugs, he'd invite them to come fix it. There's inviting is the key. You really want to be inviting to people. And that's not saying you know that you need to welcome every contribution that comes in. I, I view contributions as a fantastic teaching opportunity, um, uh, where you you know. I like getting my patches rejected when they give feedback as to why because I feel like every time that happens I learn something um, and you know so so it's not necessarily about uh, accepting everything but it's inviting people to participate and it's amazing how often software engineers feel that they are not invited like they're not willing uh, that, that, that the the party is not uh, welcoming of their contributions or that they're not qualified to contribute 
um, like in general, software engineers, I think, just feel um, underqualified to contribute to open source. There, there are some exceptions in some communities, but in general, I feel like uh, because of that, uh, you really need to overemphasize, overemphasize how much you want them to contribute, how welcoming you are to it. Uh, that's one. I, I think the second part is making it easy to contribute. Uh, writing a contribution guide, making it uh, so people feel like they're welcome. So so often we see projects um, where no one knows how to contribute to them. There's no guide to it, and then you see uh, you know some people try, and the pull requests just add up, and nobody's responding to them. Um, so I think you know the first step is be welcoming, invite people. The second step is make it so that when they're ready to make an when they're ready to make a contribution that you're ready to receive it um, and that you can respond to them and, and empower them to, to do great things. Um, I think those are two really big components that are often just not there. Um, and really, I mean, I don't think it's, I don't think this is rocket science. I think this is really just kind of fundamental community building is you need to invite people and you need to make them feel welcome. Um, and if you do those two things, um, and you have something worth that people are interested in, right? Like not every project I write has contributors to it. A lot of stuff I write, um, as experiments that I kind of hope nobody touches, um, because they're experiments and, uh, you know, you, you really have to have something that people find valuable. But if you do those two things, uh, you're going to get, uh, you're going to get contributions. Um, the third step which is even if you do those two things right, I think the third step is where even the most successful projects stumble, um, which is you need to empower users. Once people are contributing and they're doing a good job with it, you really need to empower them uh, or else you'll find, and I see this all the time uh, with, with open source projects, that often there's, there's kind of this ego thing that goes in with the, the creator that feel like they're the only one qualified to make decisions for the project. And uh, and his that's almost never true. Uh, that, that, that's I, I I just can't think of a single example where that is actually true. It's usually the case that it's not designed by committee, but there's enough people with successful projects that are uh, that are committed and qualified that uh, enabling them uh, enables the project to go even further. Um, and you know you'll see with all of my projects as as soon as somebody starts giving good contributions, um, ones that I feel like I don't need to give lots of feedback on, um, my policy has always been to invite them to be a maintainer on the project. Um, and so far that has never backfired. That has always been a successful thing where, um, when people feel like the maintenance is part of their responsibility, they get more engaged. Uh, they end up usually doing better work, often better than I would ever do. Uh, the projects uh, end up succeeding more. Um, and I've never had it, you know, people, well, what if I give away that control? What's going to happen? What They're going to merge a bunch of stuff I don't want. Um, I've never had that happen. I've never had... Uh, it, it, people usually try respect you uh, when you give them respect. So if you're giving them respect saying, hey, I think you're doing great stuff. I'd love you to join and be a maintainer. Um, you know, talk to me if you have any questions about things. And they do. 
and they will talk to you. Um, you know, and most most things are pretty clear. Like it should go in or it shouldn't. Um, and for the things that aren't, uh, co- having a conversation around it is always better than a blank rejection um, or a blank acceptance. So, in my experience, this has been: if you empower your contributors, uh, they will they will they will uh, pay you back in spades, and, and not you specifically, but the project. Um, so those are my three for today. And, and so, and, and those are, those are all fantastic and they, they absolutely resonate to kind of everything that we're seeing and uh, we understand about open source, which is, um, you know, frankly, as a, as like an EMC or it's not my personal forte, but I understand the over the overall relevance of the, of, of the kind of the whole business of open source. Um, so speaking of the business side of it, right, something that a business that is founded on open source or started that way, uh, even things as simple as what, uh, where Linux started and then you see something that turns into something like Red Hat, um, or even more so, uh, how Docker gets formed versus the fact that at some point somebody says, you know, we really need to monetize this. Um, it's great that we all have, we do this on our side. It's bigger than me. Um, it's very popular. People are asking for it, whatever drives the monetization of it. Um, when something transitions from being being you know essentially rooted and open from the beginning and then turns into something that's being monetized it, what is it that might be you know kind of what are the what do you think might be the key characteristics of letting them translate successfully um, you know what might you know what do you think might actually drive those kind of successes and stuff like that from a uh, actually monetizing something uh, specifically something like maybe docker yeah so uh, um, it's a great question it's a question without a co- clear answer today, and I'll kind of talk around that a bit. Um, let's look at successful open source companies. Uh, Red Hat's the top of the list, and if you look at it, Red Hat w- Linus didn't start Red Hat, right? The Linux project and Red Hat are completely independent. From there's an association between them, but they are independent entities, um, and. And they proved that you can build a business around an open source project, um, and and they they proved that well. Um, what and I think that's a very different thing than Mongo and Docker and and others, where the company it's a company first, it's an open source project second, um, and, and and not saying that in terms of priority, but saying it in terms of of chronology. Um, right, like Docker was born out of Dot Cloud, uh, MongoDB was born out of Tengen, um, and those were companies first. And they created these open source projects and looked for ways to monetize them. Um, and and I was, you know, as far as I know, uh, I wasn't at either place at day one, but it seems to be very early on at both places that was kind of the idea. And, and you know, and both have been very successful as far as valuations. Um, and you know both are young but have good revenues i don't think either of them are at red hat levels yet but uh good good revenues to to support that uh so being part of two of these companies um is is interesting in that i'm learning there's there is not a playbook that works um monetizing an open source project um, there, there's some very obvious things. Uh, you add services around it um, and make services that people want to pay for. 
um, is, is certainly part of that. Uh, I think everybody goes down that road and tries that path. Um, what those services are is itself uh, not clear. Um, Mongo's approach uh, was very different than Docker's approach here, very different from uh, Cloudera and, and other companies. Um, and I think what people are trying to figure out is where's that balance? Uh, because with any any of these things, there really needs to be that balance of, um, you know, we saw at MongoDB, a lot of other databases started selling add-ons to their software, right? Not services, but add-ons. And MongoDB, we, we didn't really do that ever. Um, and, and what we saw was all it did was cannibalize their growth, their adoption. Right, so I don't. I, I won't speak of any databases specifically, but some of the other open source databases started to do things like, well, this feature is you got to pay for this feature, right? So you could, you know, let's say it was replication or search or or whatever it was. Like you, you can use that, in, but as soon as you want to use it in production, uh, you have to pay for licenses for these features, um, and you know the we saw we saw directly. That that had a correlation to their adoption. That people, you know, we're in conversations and we see, oh, people say things like, oh, well, we wouldn't use them because it's not really open source. It's open source when you're like playing with it, but whenever you're using it, it's really commercial. Um, and, and of course, that's one way to monetize, uh, but it comes at the cost of adoption uh, and 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 kind of strangling adoption. Uh, and, and Mongo, we didn't take that. We did have a few add-ons for very enterprise features like Kerberos, um, but for you know, we made the policy that anything a startup would ever use would always be in the open source free project, and we think that really helped with adoption. Um, at the same time, you've got to figure out where that balance is of where you can start charging for things, um, and so you know, I think key to success with open source is it's got to be adoption first. If people aren't using it, you don't have a market around it. As simple as that, right? So you have to have adoption first, and then we have to, as an industry, there isn't a playbook yet. Uh, we're really trying to figure out when to throw that switch uh, um, and where to kind of put it as to how you're going to monetize it. Once the adoption's reached the right levels or, or is at a place where you feel like it's the right place, how do you, how do you start monetizing that and you know what the playbook is? Um, I, I, I think the industry is trying to figure that out uh, pretty pretty heavily right now. Um, like I said, there's a lot of companies like Netflix and Twitter doing open source and doing it well with business models that don't depend on it. I think the industry is determined, uh, I, I feel pretty confident saying this, that, that open source slash free is the future. Uh, most, most software, I mean, Windows 10 was free. The last... Apple OS. These are very closed source companies, and even their last two big releases were free. Um, I, I think we're starting to get a point where people, other than games, aren't really paying for software, um, but they are paying for subscriptions and services, uh, and we're readily doing that. Um, so I think software is going to continue to be free, and I think we're going to see more and more of these subscription services around that. I think the companies that figure out how to do that. Uh, best are, are the ones that are going to um, really start write those playbooks. Um, and, and certainly Docker and Mongo are part of that story. 
Um, but I, I think you know we're, I think we're a good five years away from having a a playbook that we can look back and say this is how it need, it should be done. All right, Steve. Thank you. Uh, so with that, you know, you brought up a good point. Basically, it's like uh, people have to want this thing. They want to use it uh, before we can even think about commoditizing it. So with that, I think. Uh, you know, Docker is something that, that people certainly want. They're using, um, and they're getting a lot of value from it. But I've noticed that, um, you know, the Open Container Initiative, for instance, Docker is a part of with, you know, a smattering of, of other corporations, right? EMC, VMware, HP, AT&T. Like, there's a whole slew of people that are part of the OCI. How does, how does corporate involvement to an existing, you know, whether it's an open source project or Docker in particular, how does it impact that project? Are they are they forcing you to do things maybe you 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 wouldn't want to do or never thought of? But how how does that is that a community in and of itself, or are are they infringing upon maybe what the the founders may perhaps set up or thought that they would do? But now they're doing some some things that are more corporatized. Uh, so uh, this is a great question, um, and and I, like I said it earlier, there's really nothing like open source. Uh, there there is nothing like these collaborative projects from competitors like this. I mean, if you look at look at the people on the OCI, um, they're they're all competitors. HP and IBM, Microsoft. Um, I mean. They're, they're, these are EMC, right? These are all competitors. Red Hat, SUSE, um, Oracle, right? Like <laughs> they're all competing on lots of levels, and yet they come together for this project. Um, and of course, they all have their own interest, right? Like none of them are doing this project because they think that it's good for all mankind, right? They're, they're all participating in this because. They think it's going to help their unique interests, which are different from others' interests, um, right? Like, it, and it should be. Um, so, so it creates this very interesting culture of frenemies. Um, like, I don't know a better way of describing it, um, I, but I, I will say I think the OCI. I, I've I've been a so I helped I helped initiate it when I was at Docker. Um, pushing it forward. I think it's a really good thing for everybody. I think it was the way to go. The last thing the industry needs is Betamax uh, VHS wars or uh, browser wars or any anything with these competing standards. Right. Really what we need is more like what browsers are today, which is every website works pretty much in every browser. Um, and you know, and certain browsers have certain features that I might like better, but um, I think the entire industry loses if if I'm distributing software and I have to distribute it in six different container formats, right? Like everyone loses when that happens. Um, I think the entire industry can win, and all of the users win when there's a single container format that we can all use together. Uh, like I, I just see that as a huge win across everyone. Uh, what it gives is it, you know, I'm sure, um, you know, like think of Microsoft and Oracle of old. We'd love to have our container, our format locked in, and you can only use our format on our platform. Uh, and that comes at, at the cost of 
lack of innovation. It comes at the cost of vendor lock-in, which is good for business, but never good for the users. Um, and, and so what we have here with this is um, a bunch of companies that have recognized that in spite of them might wanting to do that, none of them have enough of a foothold to be able to push that forward to be able to push their own format forward and exclude the rest. Like I think everyone realized that together this benefits us better than individually. Um, and it's also the case where realistically the format is not where the money is. Right? Like I think everyone's okay with accepting the fact that like a universal format is good for everybody because the container format um, will not get the adoption it needs if we have to pay licensing fees around it. So an open format is, is better. Um, and and the format always started open. I mean, Docker was an open format uh, from the beginning anyway. Um, and, and they realized that really in this space, uh, where they're going to add the most value is in figuring out not the format, but rather how to orchestrate these and how to coordinate all the different containers across ecosystems. That, that's something every company needs and companies will be willing to pay for. I, I don't think companies are going to be willing to pay for a container format. So, so I love this initiative. I love that all these companies get together. I, I love that you, know, you see um, companies that are directly competing, agreeing and working together. Um, I organized the first meeting right after we announced the Open Container Initiative. And, and I can tell you it was, it was an amazing experience to sit there around this table um, we have, you know, Brandon from CoreOS, uh, Michael from Docker. We have Google engineers, uh, Microsoft engineers, uh, IBM engineers. Um, I'm trying to think of everyone around the table. EMC engineers, um, HP, and and they're all around the t Red Hat. Like we're all sitting there, and at and like there was not a sense of anyone saying, well, Red Hat needs this or Docker needs this. It was really. A bunch of smart engineers that kind of put their name badge at the door, and we're just working on making a project great. Um, and, and you know that for me was really, um, in some ways, a bit of a highlight of my career to to be able to see that come together and to see this group work cohesively and and unified around this single goal of making a container format that everyone could benefit from. Um, so yeah, yeah. For me, that was really kind of open source at its at its purest, um, and somewhat in a way humanity, right? We're putting aside our differences and working together. And and that kind of brings us to that's that's awesome. And by the way, I wish I was at that table. Like uh, I would have gladly brought coffee or whatever. If somebody invited <laughs> me. Um, but uh, you know, that brings us to kind of our last our last question. We have of course um, run run towards time, but there's so much more to talk about always. Um, as as a corporation, we t we're starting to move towards you know more and more open source. And obviously, I met you through uh, you know Jonas Roslin, dear friend, awesome guy, too smart for me. Um, and you know we talk about what we're doing as an, as a company, which we see a lot of as well, which is taking products we already have, and maybe we're even already selling or whatever, and going okay, we're this is great that we're selling it, but it's not the right way. And taking that internal product putting it out on Git and creating an open source version that's free to anybody. Obviously, you know, people, hopefully people are contributing and we're pulling that back into the enterprise version or what are we, whatever we intend. So 
the reverse of the earlier question, what do you think this trend towards and the impact of open sourcing software inside of these large enterprises, these large corporations, the EMCs of the world, the HPs, whoever else, uh, especially given the fact that they have quarterly requirements to show revenue uh, thanks to the stock market. So what, what do you see that being like? And what do you see, you know, how do you, what do you see the challenges there being? Uh, that's a great question. Um, so I'll start off by saying, I think I'm glad the industry is doing it. I think, I think it's pretty clear that's where the future is. Um, at the same time, I think there's a lot of learning that needs to happen. Um, we, we see the, especially with these, what we're talking about, like the HPs, the IBMs, the Intel, these companies that have been around for generations, industry generations, you know, we're not talking about Netflix and Twitter, which are relatively young. We're talking about these, um, ones that really have been around for a long time. Um, I think they still need to learn how to do this right. I, I think there's definitely um, definitely opportunities for this to be really, really successful for them, but it's going to require them to kind of recognize that the world is changing, uh, the software world is really changing, um, and, you know, like, I think a big part for a lot of them is control and recognizing that to be successful in open source, it it almost always means uh, giving control to other groups too. Um, and when that happens, really good things can happen. And when that doesn't happen, it's not, it's usually good things happening, but it's much more limited. Um, you know, and we kind of see, um, there, there's lots of examples and I, and I hate picking on anything that doesn't go well. I like picking on things that are successful. Um, I, I hate picking on things that are less successful, so I won't mention any specifics here. But there, there's lots of projects that kind of are in these weird, like, uh, if you if you want to make decisions, you have to pay a bunch of money, and you see the projects just kind of uh, st struggle. Um, and you see other projects where uh, there's a more, um, more I don't know what the right word is. I mean, businesses are there to make money. Uh, so I, won't, I, I don't think it's more like a ethical or anything like that, I think. Um, but I, I see there's there's other projects that are, I guess more open in the sense that it's more like a meritocracy where good ideas can come from lots of places. It doesn't require you to pay to be able to present good ideas and to get those in. Um, and places that do that, they're finding a lot more benefit from the open sourcing of things. And, you know, there's lots of motivations for open sourcing things. Um, you know, we just see, I'll say specifically, Apple just open source Swift. Right, that was a big thing, um, and it remains to be seen what will come from that. Um, I think the reason they—I I don't know the, all their motivations from doing it—they clearly built it behind the closed doors. Uh, why would they open source it after that? I—I think—I um, think the my take on the reason is because if if it's built on Apple and it only runs at Apple, they're going to limit how many developers want to use it. And they're going to delimit its potential. And if you open source it, uh, now we're seeing, you know, Objective C has always been seen as a Mac only, iOS only thing. Um, whereas Java, it's not open source, but it, it, it uh, and 
I think it kind of predates the open sourcing of things, but is an everything thing. You write Java for mobile, desktop, everywhere, uh, servers, etc. Uh, we're seeing more and more languages being open source because it helps adoption and it takes them further. Um, I think Apple would love to see, uh, you know, Swift apps that you can run on the server, run on Linux servers, run on Windows. I think it will attract more developers. Um, I think it'll give them better libraries and make it easier for people to develop in those languages. Um, you know, that's my take on it. I don't think Apple's come out and given their motivation from it. But we have seen the community kind of explode of Swift since they did it. They, they made that announcement, and the community kind of skyrocketed um, in a very quick way. Um, and I think that can happen with other projects from, you know, um, IBM and HP and, and EMC and, and all these big companies. But, it, you know, they need to figure out uh, a way to... Um, to really engage the community and re let the community know it's it's not it's no longer an EMC project it's it's really our project collectively um, that EMC has given to the community and is happy to continue to benefit from but thinks other people can benefit from it too and and really excited about that mutual beneficial thing and, and specifically to Swift I'm going to steal from what you said earlier I think if Apple fully meant it and really wanted a hundred percent community involvement. Um, you know, somebody like a Microsoft or maybe a Google, you know, type Android team would end up being a maintainer on Swift, right? So that yeah. really releasing it by um, getting into a coopetition scenario on something that they created and put their biggest rival as maintainer against uh, and going forward, kind of like you mentioned earlier. Yeah. And on the flip side, we have .NET opening up, mm -hmm. right? Like, I mean, I think um, that might be like I think it's a new Microsoft, right? I think Microsoft's changing in fantastic ways. We see the opening of .NET, and and specifically wanting to support it across all platforms, right? Like what a fantastic thing for developers who, um, you know, .NET developers that they're able to build across multiple platforms from one place. Um, it, I mean, it, it's great. It, it's really exciting to see these changes in the community. Um, these changes in the ecosystem in, in, in the industry take place. Um, and I think, you know, these big companies just need to learn from some of the examples that are being set by the more nimble companies, by just open source projects in general, and even by people like Microsoft and Apple with these latest initiatives. And, and we, we couldn't agree more, which is kind of why we had you on. So, uh, <laughs> the, you know, the, it's, uh, unfortunately, time's up. Um, so, you know, this is, this is normally where we say goodbye and, and digitally hug. Um, so one of the things we like to do to make sure everybody understands is, um, you know, again, community. How do people get a hold of you? We saw um, your SPF 13 on Twitter, SPF uh, 13 on GitHub. You have a blog, which is surprise, fpf13.com. Um, you know, is there, is there anything else you'd like to have people understand to be able to engage with you and uh, get information from you or share with you? Um that's boy that's a lot of it um no i i i really love open source i love working with developers um you know i i'm often at conferences um i'll say this weekend uh well when is uh, i don't even know when this podcast is going live tuesday but, so four or five days they won't see you this weekend perfect you so can tweet no it out. <laughs> uh no it's uh wednesday thursday and friday of next week so right after you're hearing this um, is Gotham Go, which I'm help, helping to organize this year, which is New York's Go conference. 
um, you know, I, I just uh, I'm invested in developers. If you kind of look at my uh, career track record, um, GitHub. We didn't talk about another one of my projects, but SPF 13 Vim is just a Vim distribution that's you know a lot of uh, people are using, um, and a lot of people are helping build. Um, it's always been around making developers more successful, and more productive, um, and you know it's a bit selfish because I identify with developers and I want to be more productive and, and more successful. But um, you know I, I generally build tools that I want to use and libraries that I wish I that were out there that I could use. Um, and I love contributing to others doing similar things. Um, so yeah, I'm on I'm on all the places mentioned. SPF 13 pretty much everywhere. And and don't be shy about looking to engage or contributing to any of the projects that I'm working on. Awesome, thanks, Steve. So in addition to uh, hitting Steve up on all those uh, different avenues, we also here at the Hot Isle encourage you guys to reach out to us. So get social with us. Let us know how we're doing. Uh, what we can do better, what you want to hear, if there are any guests out there, if you've got networking opportunities to introduce us to some cool people, we'd love to hear from you. But uh, we're always looking to provide good content, educate you on some of the, the fun, new, cool stuff that's going on in the industry. So, again, get social with us, and uh, you can find us at, at Brent Piotti and at in the DC on Twitter. Yeah, so that's uh, that's it for this week. And... Uh, on behalf of the Hot Isle, my name is Brian Carpenter. My name is Brent Piotti. And of course, thank you, Steve, for all your time today. Thank you. We're out of here. Oops.